Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, beyond the stars, from the mountains to the depths of the sea, you are glorious and worthy of praise. It lifts our hearts to sing that praise and to, to have our minds and our hearts lifted to see you exalted. But Lord, we acknowledge that that really is too high for us. It really is difficult for us to find the right words that are fitting. There are no words that are big enough or large enough or noble enough to capture how good you are, how glorious, how majestic, how powerful. Still, it is our joy, Lord, to try to praise you. And it amazes us, Lord, that you would let us say, that you are our Lord, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Thank you for being ours. Thank you for buying us and letting us belong to you and be safe and secure and hopeful in you. You are ours. Not everything is ours, but you are ours. Not everything goes our way, but you are ours, and you have lordship, control, dominion, perfect control of everything. Because of that, we can trust you. We can put our, our confidence in you. A lot of things that let us down. There are a lot of things that don't come to pass. There are a lot of things that, that surprise us. We thank you that you are always Lord, seated on the throne, and firmly in control, having planned the end from the beginning before one day of creation ever began. Hear us, Father, for there are things that, that are in our hearts that, that we bring to you. We pray for those that are sick, healing from surgery. We pray for those of our, our church family and our loved ones who suffer serious illnesses. Have mercy on them, Lord, and, and heal them. Extend their lives. Preserve them. Restore them to health. We trust, Father, that someday we must leave this life unless you return first. And we trust that our days are yours. We don't cling to this life. We ask you, Lord, to use the days of our lives to enable us to be preparing to come to you and to spend eternity with you and to be more delighted to leave this world and to cling to it. But we pray for those that are sick this way. We ask you to heal them. We thank you for the love we have in our families. We thank you for the privilege of, of seeing you prosper our families with children and grandchildren. Please bless them and great-grandchildren. Please bless them and grow them. Father, we need them to grow up to be godly men and women, and we need you to bless our families that we may be Christian homes. And Father, we pray that you would bless this church richly. Thank you for... Uh, for placing Lake Oconee Presbyterian right here in this community. We pray that it will be a, a witness to your honor. We pray that, that um, men and women and boys and girls in this community will hear the gospel through the ministry of this church. And that you will bless our relationships and our interactions and our daily activities. That we may be your ambassadors here. And that we may be salt and light. And that we may be, Lord, good for this community. 
Father, thank you for uh, allowing us to worship you in song and in, in the preaching and hearing of your word. Please add your blessing to that. Please enable me, Lord, to decrease and please cause yourself to increase that we may uh, be built up in faith and strengthened and encouraged in our uh, uh, reliance upon you. Father, we pray for our, uh, our nation. We ask you to have mercy on the United States of America. We pray, Father, that you would please send a great revival throughout our country. I pray, Father, you would, you would do this so that, um, so that we may know your favor and not your displeasure. Father, we love you and we're grateful that you hear us. There are so many things in our hearts that need to be said, but Lord, as a worshiping community, we know that you hear us and we ask you to hear us in Christ and in your wonderful triune name, for you are our God and our Father. You are our Redeemer and our friend. You are our spirit of strength and life and regeneration and of endurance. These things we pray in you. Amen. While you are turning in your Bible to Psalm 8, Psalm 8, I'll take a moment to say thank you and uh, for several things. You have been my friend for a while. You probably didn't know that. I see on the back that you pray for the chaplains, so that makes you my friend and my supporter. But you supported me about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. I was in Bahrain uh, on an unaccompanied tour, and uh, Bob and Ginger contacted me, and, and uh, the small group that meets in their home sent me a box at one point full of literature that I put out on the table and gave away the Marines. I think, I, I think you probably um, might not remember that. And then at Christmas time, they sent me a box with, with CDs of Christmas music and candy and a nice Christmas card and, a, and, an, and a, an enormous six-inch Christmas tree. And uh, so I had lots of fun with that. That meant a lot to me. Uh, that meant a whole lot to me. So thank you for your support in that way. And I know that you love Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen and Coast Guardsmen. So uh, on, on their behalf, it's a pleasure for me to be able to say to you, thank you for supporting the ministries of your chaplains. Uh, Gwen and I are also very appreciative that you would let us come and, and uh, uh, join you in worship today. And um, we do pray that... that um, that you will be blessed. We're blessed to be here. We've enjoyed a wonderful weekend at the, at the Porter Bed and Breakfast. And uh, they're, they're very rich hosts. Um, they really are. They do a dangerous duty when they do that because, like a cat, we, we would come back if you feed us. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Psalm, chapter 8. You were turning and I wasn't. Hear the word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength. 
because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. I'm really biting off something that's too big for me to talk about the majesty of God. But I'll give it a try. And when you leave here, if I've preached appropriately, at least you'll be enticed and interested to go a lot farther than I can go. Okay? Oh, Lord, how, Lord, how majestic is thy name. Spurgeon, in his commentary on that, said that the David, when he wrote these words, is fishing for a big word that he's not up to. Majestic isn't enough. That's a great word. It's a big word. But it's not big enough for the God triune who reveals himself in the scriptures. Now, I don't have data on this. I haven't read surveys, but I'm going to make a guess that there are very few women in America who address their husband as majestic. I just can't see women coming to their husband at the breakfast table saying, Darling, you are majestic. Women who love their husbands over a long period of time are not delusional. They are realists. They are realists. And you love, some, you love a man, you love a woman, in spite of their imperfections, in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their failings to support you adequately in all situations, don't you? So, people, humans, mortal men, just don't live up to the idea of majesty or majesticness. What is this psalm talking about? There is a certain misunderstanding that we have to clarify. When I was a seminary student, uh, this psalm was explained as a psalm that, that glorified God in the creation, in the way that God made the earth and made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before their fall. If you read the uh, New American, um, excuse me, if you read the New King James Version, the editors have inserted a title there, um, something to the effect of 
the glory of God in creation. And Psalm 8 talks about creation. It does talk about creation, okay? Because uh, he says right here in verse, verse, um, verse 3, um, when I consider the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained or established or, or placed in the heavens. Okay, that, that, yes, that's the work of creation. And, and then at the end it says that, it says that you, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and majesty. Um, you've made him to rule over the works of your hands, put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the wild animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. That's, that's, that's a reflection of Genesis 1, verse 26, where God created man in God's image and said, let him have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the wild beasts of the field. There is something going on here that is indeed focused on God's creation, the world. But there's some things here that, that just don't fit The choir sang so wonderfully. When I consider the works of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? Francis Schaeffer, in one of his letters back in the 50s, was writing from Switzerland. And he wrote something that I think is illuminating. He said, he said uh, as I walk home from the post office today, I looked up at the mountain peaks with the swirling mist so high above me. I thought how our dear Lord comes into more proper perspective in our thinking in such a place as this. He's looking at the Alps. For the higher the mountains, the more understandable is the glory of Him who made them and who holds them in His hand. But the other side is true also because in a place like this man also comes into his proper perspective. As the Lord gains more greatness by comparison to the mountains so man diminishes. I think looking at the stars creates that same kind of awe and that same sense of smallness as when, when Schaefer was talking about looking at the, the enormity of the mountains. And when, we, and when you're reading this psalm, you can take it like the choir sang it, you can take it as an expression of, of wonder and gladness and honor and appreciation for the greatness of human creation. Because yes, when God created man and woman, that was the height of creation. The mountains were great, the stars were great, the, the animals were great, but man was the best or the, the, the most uh, potentially high and rich and good and profitable. Man and woman had a potential that, that was far beyond all the other stuff of creation. So you could read this verse like an exclamation. 
when I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? It's glorious that you've made man. It's glorious that you've created people with such uh, uh, privilege to bear the image of God and given them such a noble responsibility to bear the duties and the responsibilities of being your servants, your vice-regents, your governors. Well, you can read it in a humble kind of Mission, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? By comparison, as Schaefer said, what is man? They're so big, we're so small. Your works are so great, and we're so tiny. You've done something so impressive. And look at me. Remember what we said about the wine. Men are not majestic. There's several things in this psalm that do not fit the original creation. There's several things here that just don't work if we want to talk about us. Um, Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Where where does that come from? There weren't any infants in Eden. There there weren't any little children standing beside Adam and Eve when they're plucking the first uh, forbidden fruit saying, Uh, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. They weren't praising God in that situation. There was an adversary. He was quite concealed and was quite deceiving, but there was no infant voice or small child to praise God in that situation and honor him. That doesn't fit. Verse 5. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and hast crowned him with glory and majesty. Well, Adam and Eve didn't get crowned. The crown is for triumph. The crown is for victory. The crown is for finishing the course successfully. And Adam and Eve lost that opportunity. Adam and Eve failed. And because of Adam and Eve, ladies, you're married to imperfect men today. Because of Adam and Eve, corruption has come on the human race. Because of Adam and Eve, we are locked in sin and in need of a Savior. They didn't get crowned. Now, the Word of God is true. I'm not saying that the Word of God isn't true. But there's a puzzle here. There's something here that is beyond creation. And then lastly, in verse 6, Thou hast, excuse me, thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou dost put all things under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea.
put all things under his feet. Under man's feet would mean that he has control. He has dominion. It means that he's able to rule them in such a way that they must do his bidding. I'd love to have dominion over the fish of the sea. I would. If I could figure out how to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fish of the lake, I'd be a rich man. We don't have dominion. We didn't gain dominion. But whoever this psalm is written about has dominion. This psalm is about dominion. This psalm is about crowning. This psalm is about triumph. This psalm is about the rule of one who is majestic and who has accomplished the will of God. This psalm is about a man. No ordinary man. This psalm is about Jesus Christ. This psalm is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I would never have figured that out if I didn't have quotations of this psalm in the New Testament that explain it to me. This psalm appears in Matthew 26. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 20. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Now, you know this passage quite familiarly. You know, if we, if we turn with me to verse 12, Matthew 21, verse 12, and you know this. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You are making it a den of robbers. Now, I didn't see this until I really started working on the psalm. I want you to look what comes on after this. Amazing. Verse 14. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, get this, and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. I I never saw that. I don't know how many times I've read Matthew 21. I didn't see children singing in the temple. I didn't see that. I've seen plenty of times where the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were adversarial to Christ. There are adversaries that are opposed to Christ. And these children sing his praises, Hosanna to the Son of David. Sing it. Now look at this. Now look at this. Verse 16. And he said, Jesus said to them, of course. That's not in the Bible. That's me saying that. 
Verse 16, and he said to them, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read? Of course you've read it. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Same kind of thing he says on the triumphal entry when the scribes and Pharisees say, stop all this. You you, you can't let all this exuberant praise be, be given to you. And he said, if I stopped these folks, the rocks would start crying out. When the Savior, Redeemer, King enters the hall, praises are given and adversaries are shooed away. Detractors are detracted, if that's a word. So Jesus is taking Psalm 8 and he is saying, it fits. It fits me. It fits the situation. The children are fulfilling prophetic words of King David. And you should know that. And you shouldn't try to deny me that. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Again, very familiar to you. Turn there. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. You don't ever trust the preacher to be talking without checking him in the Scriptures, right? You want to make sure that that what's what's being said is is really biblical. Okay, Ephesians 1. You know, in, in 15 and 16, 17, Paul is saying, that you know he treasures he treasures the Ephesians he prays for them constantly and this is what he prays for them verse verse 18 Ephesians 1:18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and here it is verse 19 and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Here it is. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Psalm 8 is about putting all things under his feet. To put all things under his feet is to say he is supreme, he is victorious, he is in command. And Paul, writing in Ephesians 1, says it's done. It's a done deal. It's finished. It's over. It was accomplished. And now Christ, having lived, died as the sin sacrifice, having been raised from the dead, is now ascended into heaven, seated on the right hand of God. And you need to believe that he's sitting there. You need to believe that he's sitting there in power. You need to believe that he has no match. You need to believe that he is able because... God declares to you that all things are put in subjection under his feet. Done deal. Psalm 8, the Apostle Paul says, is fulfilled in Christ. One more. One more New Testament reference. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 6. Well, let me begin at verse 5. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. For he, God, God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning what we are speaking. But one has testified, David in the Psalms, David has testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. And thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now that's the clincher. The writer of Hebrews tells us very plainly Psalm 8 is about the exalted, enthroned Jesus Christ. And he tells us without a doubt in this verse, verse 8, Thou hast subjected all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him. I just don't know how to make that more plain. It's done. It's done. Jesus is Lord. He is exalted. Like you sang, He is exalted. The King is exalted on high. This psalm is about King David. It's about Jesus. Now, Jesus is a man. Okay, let me offer a few concluding thoughts. Jesus is a man. There's a man on the throne of God. And the reason that Jesus had to come is because God is stubborn. God is a perfect dad. When he says, do it, son, he makes sure that it gets done. He told Adam and Eve, bear my image, subdue the earth, rule over the creatures. They didn't do it. You think, well, poor old God, he doesn't go off in his, into his bedroom and cry a while and figure out, okay, I've got to come up with plan B. No, God is stubborn. He says, I want it done, it's going to be done. Finally, one day, he has a son. <coughs> he's of a different lineage. He's not a child of Adam, but he's a human. He took on a human life and, and he took our nature, but he is the perfect son. He is the second person of the Trinity and he bears our humanity when he becomes the incarnate son of Mary and Joseph. The incarnate son of God, the son of Mary and Joseph. Excuse me. So as a man, he comes and picks up what Adam and Eve messed up and he does what they should have done and could never do. He does it right. He fulfills the, man, the mandates and he takes dominion. You know, John Calvin said that when Christ, in the days of Christ's flesh, 
when he lived with the disciples and he did the ministries that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Christ was still the second person of the Trinity. He was still maintaining the earth. You know, Colossians says that he upholds the world. He upholds the creation by his hand. Jesus never stopped being God. And having taken our humanity, he never stops being one of us, a human. That's a mystery. He's bigger on the inside than he is on the outside. And he accomplishes as the Son what no man ever could have. Remember that verse? What is man? What is man that you take thought of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-description. Son of Man, we've been told, is an expression from Daniel 7 that, that the prophet spoke and that Jesus uses to kind of maintain a certain distinctiveness or anonymity so that people wouldn't associate worldly ideas with him so that he could be a distinctive person that would be different from all the baggage that people would attach to him thinking about anticipating the coming of the Messiah by calling himself the Son of Man. It was a certain mystery that you're going to just have to watch me and learn about me. But it is so amazing. It is so amazing that right there in verse 4, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the Son of Man that thou dost care for him. The Son of Man, that's the title that Jesus preferred. That's the title that applies to Jesus Christ. One of the most preeminent, one of the most respected Old Testament scholars writes on this fourth verse and says, no matter what you say about Jesus' use of the Son of Man, this verse deserves just as much credit as anything from Daniel 7. This verse expresses the, the reason, the the permission for Jesus to call himself that. So yeah, it's not a humble expression. I mean, in a way, when you're reading this verse, this psalm, it it does need to be an exclamation. It is when I consider the moon and the stars, the heavens that you've made. What is man? By comparison, what is this man? This man. The Son of Man, the Savior, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, the God-Man, the second Adam, the, 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 the author of a new humanity, the ruler, crowned king. What is he? More glorious, larger, greater. Number two. There's a real practical application here in verse um, 4. Verse verse (coughs) 3. I'm sorry. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, that little word consider is very important. You need to take that word home with you today. Consider. It means cogitate. It means think deeply. It means reflect, ruminate. Turn it over and over in your mind. 
You can see David. David's been anointed to be the next king. And David has to go back to the sheep. And he's sitting now out watching sheep, standing watch in the night. And what's he doing? He's looking at the stars and he's thinking how big the job is ahead of him. He's thinking, what does it mean that I've been anointed to be king? To consider means to stop, turn off all interference, silence all media, and ponder. Now, our world doesn't respect that, especially where I am. If another officer walked in and said to me, what are you doing, chaplain? And I simply said, I'm simply pondering the greatness of God and the smallness of man. They would lock me up. I'm not sure you can do this out in the open for everybody to watch. You have to kind of do this privately. I'm also going to admit to you that I'm not the kind of person that thinks great thoughts. I have to have help. Marines are funny. You know, Marines are really funny. You know, a a high school graduate, PFC, Lance Corporal, They really are under the conviction that if they thought something, it must be pure genius. And you can try various ways to tell them you need to stop talking to yourself and telling yourself to believe the things that you think are right. You need some help, Marine. You're not a genius. Well, I'm I'm going to... I'm able to consider things when I read the Bible and when I read good commentaries on the Bible or when I listen to a a Ligonier uh, presentation. I have to have help. Or when I open the hymn book and I think, and I'll sing uh, words that, that didn't just come out of me. Christians need to be thinking and considering, meditating on the greatness of Christ. There is nobody in your community who's not a Christian, there's no influence in our culture, there's no, there are no forces in operation in the world that are, going to cons- that are going to encourage you to have a high opinion of Jesus Christ. And you will be able to fill your days with all kinds of busyness so that at the end of the day, you hadn't thought a serious thought about nothing. So when the psalmist says, when I consider the work of your hands, he's encouraging us to become more meditative, to become more pensive, to become more thoughtful, to become more serious about taking the Word of God and thinking it through. When you're looking at the stars and you're thinking, who is big enough to put that in place? Who could have done that? Nothing comes from nothing. Where did that come from? What is that all about? The writer of David, the writer of this psalm, is saying the Creator is greater than the creation. And that's why it is an exclamation. He's far beyond the things He's made. These things are marvelous, but the Creator God is even more astonishing and wonderful. Paul writes about that in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. He says, consider, think carefully. God will give you understanding. The writer of Hebrews in the third chapter says, consider Jesus the author and finisher of our confession. Consider. Lastly, I will say this. 
Jesus is glorified here because we need a big God. We don't need a little God. We don't need a pal. We don't need a peer. We don't need a friendly chum that goes around with us and cares about our personal little world as though he's one of us. He's not. He's far greater, far more glorious than anything we know or anything we are. We need a big God. If life is a rat race, only the rats are winning. And they cheat. And it's frustrating. And it's aggravating. I feel like the little kid on the playground and the big kid's got his hand on my forehead and I'm swinging at the air and I can't ever touch him. If we have a big God, he can handle it. And things we read in the scriptures point out to us that we might never see the ultimate victory of Christ in our lifetime. But reading the word of God, we can be assured that he is king, he's enthroned, he's crowned, and we can count on him. The wicked will not win. The wicked will not be victorious. The corrupt, the vile, the cruel, the mean, the evil will not triumph. But our man will. Our man will. Father in heaven, what a glorious Christ you have made. And how amazing that you would let him be ours and let us be his. Be glorified here, Lord, in our lives. Be glorified. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.